Today, we discuss a tragic new development out of Hong Kong. We talk about the vastly underreported genocide taking place currently in Nigeria. We talk about a new study that reveals how much the media influenced the presidential election and the Biden administration's professed adoration for the Great Reset. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. Happy Friday. Guys, thank you so much for your flexibility as I had to move today's episode. Well, I had to move this episode that I'm recording now from yesterday, Thursday, to today, Friday. So really appreciate your patience on that. I had a a, um, string of technical difficulties that took place over the course of about 24 hours, one after another, kind of random, and in the midst of a very busy scheduled 24 hours, and therefore it made it tough to alleviate some of those challenges. So I decided to push it back 24 hours. I hope you had a chance to watch my video episode or listen to it in audio-only format about the church. Took a break from politics for the day to talk about the church and some of the major challenges the church is facing in the moment, but why we can ultimately be hopeful as we head into 2021. So if you have not yet listened or watched that, highly recommend going back and giving that a listen or a watch. Also, make sure you follow me on Instagram at RealMichaelCypher, where you can receive updates about the show. For example, when I had this technical difficulty two days ago and had to move the uh, episode, I announced it on my Instagram story. So you'll get updates like that, as well as current events updates regarding domestic issues and international issues. Highly recommend following me there, tracking with my story. Subscribe to the email list at refiningpoliticsandculture.com so you can receive the weekly show notes, outline citations, resources that I use in these episodes. And then finally, if you'd feel led to donate to the show, if you'd like to see it continue to grow, please, you can do that my website at refiningpoliticsandculture.com. As always, share this show with your community if you've enjoyed this. If you've seen this as a helpful resource, share this with your community. It helps the show grow tremendously. So we have a lot that I want to get into today. Before we go any further, I just want to thank you. Yesterday, I was walking and grabbing coffee and just reflecting on how much of a blessing it is to be able to speak with you all about these important topics. I'm really, really thankful and grateful and humbled by the fact that this this audience is nationwide and even around the world, and it's it's such a privilege and a blessing, and I hope you know I don't take that for granted. It's so cool that you join me on this journey weekly. So if you're a devoted listener and you, you're tracking with this show, my goodness, thank you. If you're a new listener to the show, if this is your first ever episode you're listening, welcome, and I hope and pray you like what you hear and you want to come back for more. So let's jump into it. First thing I want to talk about today is unfortunately not great news, but it's very important. We have to pay attention to what's happening in Hong Kong. If you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know that Chinese policy is one of the most important issues in my mind, and I know that a lot of the media is not talking about it, but I wish we were because honestly, the evidence is, the writing's on the wall. The most pertinent and dangerous threat to the world at large is China and Chinese aggression, especially over their localized region, over Hong Kong and over Taiwan. They say that they're okay with freedom in those two regions, yet Beijing uh, clearly communicates with their actions a very different message. They've completely stripped Hong Kong of any freedoms over the last year with the security law this summer, and we've already seen the disastrous effects of this. And if you think that it'll just stay localized, that's a mistake. We should deeply care about what's happening, not just for the freedom fighters on the ground in Hong Kong and Taiwan, but also for the world at large, because the actions that China's taking 
over to a pr- over Hong Kong and Taiwan in order to oppress their freedoms, these bastions of free speech and free market integrity amidst a sea of communism. We should care about this because not only are they looking to do that there, ultimately uh, their actions toward their localized region are an indicator, a sign of what they desire to do to the rest of the world. Ultimately, they've been building to this for a long time. Chinese policy and Chinese history is of great interest to me because they affect so much of what's happening in the world around us. You would, I mean, and that's, that's understandably so. We, they're the largest country in the world. So much of our economy relies on them, which is very dangerous. We've learned that in the COVID season with so much of our medicines being manufactured in China, which is ridiculous. And we have businesses in, in America that completely kowtow to the Chinese regime and are unwilling to call them out for human rights atrocities, even to the point where companies like Nike will fight lawsuits or fight legislation that requires companies to not use slave or forced labor. How the heck does that make any sense? Why are people not rallying outside of Nike's headquarters and protesting the fact that they're actually uh, comfortable using sketchy labor in China? When we know that the Chinese regime has long oppressed religious minorities, in fact, the Uyghur Muslim population, we've got a concentration camp in China that's got over a million Uyghur Muslims inside where they're harvesting organs at the moment. And the reason they're harvesting organs of the Uyghur Muslims is because they want to sell these organs on the black market to halal, people that need halal organ transplants. So other Muslims that need to make sure that they have halal organs, they can only get it, obviously, from Muslims. And so uh, the... The Chinese government is essentially harvesting these organs out of these Uyghur Muslim people to give to these high bidders that need organ transplants. It's ridiculous. I mean, we could go on for a long time, and I have in many episodes. Go back and listen to the humanitarian crisis, uh, the Communist Party of China episode from back in July, where we detail the security law, the way in which it strips Hong Kong of any freedoms, where uh, Hong Kong has really been a wonderful place of freedom and a beacon of hope for a long time. Um, China, we've known for the last few decades, their ultimate desire is to oppress those freedoms to eventually clean house in Hong Kong and have Beijing take over Hong Kong in its entirety. So this is out of the New York Post. Hong Kong activist Joshua Wong sentenced to jail for anti-government protests. Hong Kong pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong and two others were sentenced to jail Wednesday over anti-government protests that rocked the region last year. Wong, 24 years old, was sentenced to 13 and a half months in jail after pleading guilty to organizing and taking part in the June 21st, 2019 rally outside Hong Kong police headquarters over the extradition bill. Two others, Agnes Chow and Ivan Lam, also copped to charges. Chow was sentenced to 10 months for participating and inciting other protesters, and Lam was given seven months on incitement charges. Now, these three men are just three men in a sea of 10,000 people who have been arrested since June of last year in connection to the protest against this proposed bill that would have allowed extradition to mainland China. Late last month, just before Joshua Wong was taken into custody, he vowed that he would not back down from his work. He said, quote, I'm persuaded that neither prison bars nor election ban nor any other arbitrary powers would stop us from activism. He admitted that he was a bit scared to spend time behind bars, but this is not his only time in jail. He's, he's repeatedly been put behind bars over the last five years. Wong is known abroad for his role as a student leader of the Umbrella Revolution protests in Hong Kong 2014. In 2014, highly recommend going back and doing some research on the Umbrella Revolution. The jailing of Wong, Chow, and Lam was slammed by Hong Kong's final uh, British governor, Chris Patton, who said it was another grim example of China's determination to put Hong Kong in handcuffs. So backstory, obviously, very brief, but Hong Kong used to be under British territory rule. And uh, now, since they've tried to adopt this one country, two systems sort of situation with China, but at the end of the day, China's made it very clear they have no interest in that. They want one country, one system. They do not desire for Hong Kong to have freedom, and they've made that clear. Once again, the government has used the politically motivated charge of inciting others to protest to prosecute people who have merely spoken out and protested peacefully. 
said the group's Asia Pacific Regional Director, Yamini Mishra. She's with Amnesty International. Uh, she said that the three must be released immediately and unconditionally. By targeting well-known activists from Hong Kong's largely leaderless protest movement, authorities are sending a warning to anyone who dares openly criticize the government that they could be next. Now, Joshua Wong is an absolute hero. This kid's 24 years old. In 2015, Fortune magazine uh, named him one of the world's greatest leaders. So he was under 20 years old, and he was already named one of the world's greatest leaders. Time magazine called him one of the most influential teens of 2014 and nominated him in 2014 for the person of the year. He was 18 years old. This guy is an absolute hero. He's one of my heroes. I, I look up to him, and he's younger than me. And this is a guy who has repeatedly looked tyranny in the face and stood against them, has stood his ground, and he's led a movement to do the same. Here's the crazy thing. You have people like this. By the way, he's a Christian. He's a Protestant Christian. He loves the Lord. So his desire to stand for freedom is not based on worldly ideology. It's actually based on the deeper understanding that God desires to give us unalienable rights that the government cannot give, and therefore the government cannot take away. This is a man at 24 years old who understands what so many people live their entire lives never understanding, that God is the one that gives rights. Therefore, the government cannot give rights, and therefore, the government cannot take them away. He's fighting for that reality in his country. And the cool thing about these pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong is that they actually carry around American flags. In fact, last year, they even carried around Trump flags because to them, the American system, they recognize that it is a symbol of democracy, free speech, civil liberties. So in Hong Kong, picture this. You have a bunch of young people that are standing up for democracy, desiring for a system in their nation that is more like the American way and in a system that really embraces the values that America does. Meanwhile, in the United States, you have a bunch of social justice warriors that are 18 years old. They go off to liberal arts colleges. They get indoctrinated by postmodernists and Marxists. And then they want to burn down the United States, essentially. They go to their local Best Buy, shatter the glass windows, steal an Xbox, all in the name of perceived oppression. It's wild. You've got anarcho-communists on the streets in the United States that would love free speech restrictions like they have in China as long as it restricts the speech that they don't like, as long as it restricts Judeo-Christian values-centered uh, speech or Christian speech or conservative speech. They love free speech restrictions. They just want it on their terms. Meanwhile, these Hong Kong pro-democracy protesters understand that any level of free speech restrictions is immoral because ultimately you're then giving the government the power to dictate what speech is acceptable and what speech is unacceptable. And absolute power absolutely corrupts. And so if you give the government absolute power, expect for your rights to be taken away for uh, the, the government institution that's giving those rights to ultimately become corrupt because they are not God. Government cannot create rights in a moral way because government is not God. Only God is the perfect figure of morality. Therefore, we should only trust God to dictate what's a right and what is not, what is good and what is evil. That is something that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, as Christians, we believe this. It's core to our message of the gospel. He is the absolute truth, the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one that creates right and wrong. Government cannot do it. Therefore, government's goal, like the founders understood, is simply to protect what God has already ordained right and wrong, absolute morality. The pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong understand this. The United States uh, pro-communism protesters do not understand this. The Black Lives Matter anarchists on the street do not understand this. And I'm not saying that everyone that marched for Black Lives Matter is an anarchist, but I am saying that the ones that are the loudest that are causing the destructions on our streets certainly are communists or anarcho-communists. They desire for the United States to burn. They hate every bit of American values, and they desire for a complete do-over. So 
I propose a trade. I think that we should give China all of our communist protesters and we will take all of the pro-democracy protesters from Hong Kong and we will invite them to the United States to be citizens. I think that is a very fair trade. I think it would make everyone happy. It would give, give everyone a taste of what they are seemingly desiring. And hopefully it would wake up some minds of our youth here, social justice warriors in the United States, to realize how good they have it in the United States. Far too many people take this great country for granted. Far too many people do. We are not perfect. We never have been. But my goodness, we are, I've been to a lot of places. I've been to a lot of countries. The world is a wonderful place, but the United States is special. We embrace things here, civil liberties and free speech and the ability to exercise unalienable rights while the government is solely there to protect them, not to give or to take them away. We have that opportunity here in the United States in a way that nowhere else in the world does. So that's the update on Hong Kong. I will keep you all in the loop and we'll continue to speak about all the different ways in which we're seeing the ugly side effects of this Hong Kong security law as it's rolling out and being implemented. And we'll continue to watch all the ways in which China exerts their oppressive authority over the localized region and why we should pay attention for the world at large. Also, please be praying for Joshua. That's something that I encourage us all to be doing. Pray for Joshua and others like him, the 10,000 others that have been arrested for standing against tyranny. Pray that Joshua would have divine encounters with the Lord like Acts 16, like Paul did in the prisons. Pray that Paul and Silas, in the same way that they were able to worship, even in the midst of persecution, that Joshua would be able to do the same. He is a self-professed believer in Christ. And so I just pray that he would uh, be, he would be, his arms would be kept high in praise to the Lord, even amidst the extreme hardship that he is facing at the moment. So next thing I want to do is I want to talk to you about an also heartbreaking story. Sorry, guys, I don't mean to be depressing at the middle or at the beginning of this episode, but these are really important stories that the media is largely keeping us in the dark on. And I think it's important that we bring this out into the light. Nigeria's Christians have become the target of genocide as international community remains silent. Human rights advocates lament that genocide against Christians is only worsening. So here's a statement that you do not hear often, but it's the absolute truth. And every study that's been conducted on this will, will reiterate this as well. Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the United States, or in the world, not the United States, in the world. Christians are the most persecuted religious group. We don't talk about it. Our, our media, our secular media in the United States does not like to reiterate that reality, but that is exactly what's happening. So I want to read you the story out of Nigeria This has been taking place for years, and it's only getting worse. The religious persecution of Christians in Nigeria is teetering on genocide. Religious leaders and foreign policy analysts caution in a desperate bid for for the international community to take urgent action. The Reverend Johnny Moore, co-author of the new book, The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa, told Fox News that Christian communities have been decimated by terrorists in parts of Nigeria, and most of the persecution happening is in the shadows. Thousands of churches have been torched, children massacred, pastors beheaded, and homes and fields set ablaze by the tens of thousands, with people being targeted for their Christian faith alone. Earlier this year, just before the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic, Christian Solidarity International warned of a possible genocide unfolding in the West Africa country of 206 million people. Guys, Nigeria is the seventh largest country in the world. Why are we not hearing about this? Why are we not hearing about this? In fact, there are a few reasons why we're not hearing about this. I will dialogue about those in just a second. The warning underscored that the, quote, conditions for genocide exist in Nigeria with Christians, nonviolent Muslims, and adherents of tribal religions being particularly vulnerable and called on the permanent members of the UN Security Council to take heed. But unfortunately, the cry fell on deaf ears. And as the pandemic has grippled, or excuse me, has uh, gripped the already fragile state, the level of persecution has documented, it's been documented, it's only getting worse. 
So there are some heartbreaking statistics that exemplify this reality. More than 1,200 Nigerian Christians are estimated to have been slaughtered in the first six months of 2020, and in excess of 11,000 murdered over the past five years, with scores still unaccounted for. International Christian Concern points out that the figures are likely far greater, with upwards of 50 to 70,000 Christians dead over the past decade. In the first half of 2020, there were only six days that did not have a violent incident caused by extremist groups. ICC's president, Jeff King, said at least 400 violent attacks took place, meaning that there was an average of two violent events every day throughout those months. On the one hand, the terrorist group Boko Haram, which I'm sure many of us have heard of, has been operating in Nigeria since 2009. They pledged allegiance to ISIS back in 2015. Uh, They've become its West Africa province affiliate They seek to carve out their Islamic state. Meanwhile, the lesser known but just as hostile Islamic Fulani militants are generally herdsmen that attack Christian rural communities scattered across the country's middle belt. ICC emphasizes that they use the term militants because there are many Fulanis that are actually peaceful and law-abiding, but these militants are absolutely terrorizing the Christian community. It's heartbreaking. Nigeria is comprised almost equally of Christians and Muslims, with Islam, the preeminent faith in the nation's north, and Christianity, that dominates the south, But it's central pocket where the two regions collide. It's this region that experts say most of the bloodletting takes place. COVID-19 lockdowns have only increased the vulnerability of Nigerian Christians, noted Didi Logason, who's the executive director of Save the Persecuted Christians. Uh, She said that Nigeria's Christians in the North and Middle Belt live under constant threat of attack. They feel forgotten and abandoned by their own government and the world. Their homes and properties are at risk. They have no hope and the world offers them no succor. Just a few examples, guys. Earlier this month, local news reported that Fulani militiamen had overrun more than 100 Christian villages, spanning several counties just days after killing at least three Christians. Last month alone, a string of different reports pointed to the uh, militants kidnapping Christian women and a pastor, dismembering a young Catholic man with machetes, ambushing and wounding church security guards, shooting a Christian woman as she slept. In September, reports also emerged of the butchering of church leaders and brazen assaults of several children as young as six along with dozens being fatally stabbed in a sleepy village when more than 100 stormed Christian-run agriculture fields. Yet, this is documented to be a mere tiny tip of the iceberg. And you may be asking yourself the same question I'm asking myself. Why is the media not talking about this? This is the seventh largest country in the world, a genocide taking place, 206 million people in this country. This is a massive country. England does not even make the top 20 largest countries in the world, and yet we know more about Prince Harry's diet than we do about this genocide taking place. We know more about Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada's thoughts on the climate than we do about these thousands of people that are being systemically murdered because of their religious beliefs. How is that okay? How does that make any sense? Well, here's the four reasons that I see the that are kind of the primary reasons that the media do not cover stories like this. Number one, it's in Africa. Africa is the most underreported continent on the planet. There's a long history of journalists basically overlooking what takes place in Africa. It's a massive continent, major population, has one of the most diverse regions in the world, yet for some reason Africa is just viewed as this monolith that we largely don't talk about. There's mission trips that go there, and you'll hear the occasional story, but for how much is truly happening on the ground in Africa, in this continent, with all the different economies that are intertwined together with the multiple civil wars that are going on at the same time, with the uh, different industries that have a great impact on the world around them, you'd think that Africa would be in the spotlight a lot more often, and yet it's just not. So that's the first reason, is that for whatever reason, Africa has been historically very underreported. It's been seen as just this kind of continent that's out there, out of sight, out of mind. We don't pay much attention to it. And that's really a problem that I wish would change in our media establishment. The second reason 
is that these atrocities are happening to Christians. As I perceive the media in our country and across the West at large, the media is very attentive when there are, there are instances of persecution happening to religious minorities. So if a Muslim or a Buddhist is being persecuted, the media shoots off sirens and flares, and they are very attentive to what's taking place. When the, when the Christians are persecuted, when people are persecuted for holding Judeo-Christian values, the media is silent. They don't say a word. Because there's a deep-seated content for Christians among the secular media in the United States. I don't know if it's ignorance or if it's deliberate uh, animosity all the time, but what I do know is that as we look around and as we judge the fruit from the tree, we see that the tree largely is ignorant of what's taking place to the atrocity of Christians. And like I mentioned, Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the entire world, but the media won't talk about it. There are atrocities happening to Christians across the globe, and yet, largely, people are unaware of what's happening. So praying for these groups in Nigeria, praying for these groups around the world that are standing strong in their faith, even when it literally means life or death. And the third reason is because the violence that's taking place is taking place at the hands of Muslim militants. The media only wants to report stories where the Muslims are the victims. They never want to touch stories where the Muslims are actually the oppressors. And I'm not at all making the case that every Muslim is in line with this way of thinking. I'm not trying to say that at all. What I am saying is that currently the violence that's taking place in Nigeria is taking place at the hands of Muslims. The media is not touching it. Yet, if there's one instance of persecution or someone is hurt by a microaggression in the United States, if that person is a, if that victim is a, a Muslim, the media jumps on it. It makes national coverage. Yet, you've got a genocide taking place in Nigeria. The media doesn't touch it. And that falls right in line with how the media has acted over the last 10, 15, 20 years in our country. I wish the media said no religious persecution is okay of any religion. And so we are going to do whatever we can to shine a spotlight on any instance in where that's happening because that does not line up with the freedom of religion. That does not line up with uh, civil liberties being prioritized, with human rights being prioritized. And as journalists, your, your goal and your role should be to expose injustices taking place because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. But when you are selectively cherry-picking what you want to cover and what you don't, it actually makes it look like the media doesn't care too much about actual injustices. They just care about choosing and upholding a political narrative. And the fourth reason, and this is sort of a combination of all of the three that I've covered so far, the media wants you mad at certain groups and unaware of the atrocities of others. So the media in the United States, the secular media, the progressive media especially, loves to criticize white Christian males. That is their group of target. All of the problems in the United States can be led back or can be uh, traced back to white Christian males. And if we can just deal with those white Christian, especially the Protestant conservative males, we will solve all the nation's problems. Racism will be ended. Injustices will be ended. The world will be healed. It's just those pesky white Christian males. And if we can get rid of them, if we can deal with them, uh, and by the way, the media has actually been very vocal about this. They used to kind of hide it. Now they're out in the open about this, these beliefs. If we can get rid of them, then we will solve all the problems. So when you have Christians in another country being persecuted, when they're happening at the hands of a group that they don't like to talk about, when you've got all these factors combined, it doesn't paint the narrative that they want it to paint. So the media really wants you angry in order to accomplish their goals, their political goals at a certain group. And when something happens that doesn't fit that narrative, that would actually make you angry at a different group, they don't report it because, again, in order for the Democrats to remain on their messaging in tandem with the media, they have to keep up this rhetoric that the white Christian males, the cis white Christian males are the ones causing the destruction. It's not these other groups. Those are the other those are the victim groups. So keep focusing on those pesky white Christian males. So 
Those are the four reasons they made it uncovered. I think it's a shame, like for all the reasons I just mentioned, because the world needs to hear about these atrocities taking place. I'm praying for these groups on the ground in Nigeria. And it's it's really hard to even have to read headlines like this and read stories like this and imagine what it's like being on the ground there. Um, but we know, we know God rewards those that serve him unto the very end, that serve him and in the midst of persecution. He says, blessed are those that are persecuted because of him. And so we know that God is rewarding these people that are standing up for their faith, even in the face of persecution. He is giving them a reward of his love and his presence and his eternal presence in life and life abundantly for all of eternity. And so I just, I, I admire the faith of these Nigerian Christians that refuse to turn their back on Christ, even when it means everything is on the line. I have so much to learn from people like that. My Christianity is far too comfortable here in the United States. I'm thankful that we have the freedom of religion here. And stories like this just make me recognize how much I can often take it for granted. So, so grateful for that. It also inspires me to fight to preserve the freedom of religion we have in the United States and to not even give an inch to letting that give up or to giving that up. We cannot give an inch. We have to keep America the land of religious freedom. And then hopefully the world continues to learn from us and we can spread these values in other places as well. So speaking of the media, I want to transition a bit and I want to talk about the election. Obviously on Tuesday, I covered a lot of examples of election fraud. More and more is coming out over the, even over the last 48 hours. And we're going to talk again next week, give an update on where everything stands because a lot's taken place in Georgia over the last two days. A lot's taken place in Arizona. Um, you have a lot of advancements in how some of these hearings have actually exposed a lot of what's taking place, and the media doesn't have a good answer for it. They basically just keep saying, look away, don't pay attention, or there's no evidence, there's no evidence, even when you have people under uh, literally penalty of perjury come up and say, here's exactly what I experienced, and real journalists would say, okay, well, we should at least investigate their claims. I'm not saying that they're, of course, dead on true, but what I am saying is that these people have some skin in the game because if they're lying, there's serious penalties involved, so we, we should probably look into this. When a truck driver says that he drove thousands of ballots across a state border, we should probably analyze that. Yet the media is silent. Well, what I want to do today is rather than talk like I did on Tuesday about some of the instances of, of voter fraud that are being alleged and things that we should be looking into, and I hope and pray that the Trump campaign will continue to look into with the assistance, I hope, of the DOJ and the FBI that they would actually do their job and investigate some of these claims. What I want to do is I want to talk about the way in which the media has actually influenced the election. There was a new report out of the Media Research Center last week that found that one in six Biden voters would have changed their vote if they had known about scandals that were actually suppressed by the media. So this new report from the Media Research Center shows that the media's lack of coverage and big tech suppression of certain issues and scandals surrounding Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden could have cost Donald Trump the election. The survey results report that 17% of Biden voters would not have voted for the Biden-Harris presidential ticket if they had known about at least one of the eight news stories that were suppressed by big tech and mainstream media outlets. This is not happenstance. This is not coincidence. This is not oversight. And this is not just a mistake. President founder of the Media Research Center, Brent Bozell, said at a press conference Tuesday, these were deliberate decisions that were made thousands of times, literally thousands of times, to either twist or to not cover it at all, which we found in this case. The survey conducted online by the polling company with a plus or minus of uh, 2.3 
4% margin of error at a 95% confidence interval, asked 1,750 Biden voters, so very reliable poll here, large sample size, living in seven swing states, so a diverse sample size as well, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, states that were all consequential to the election. If they were aware of certain issues surrounding Biden, his family, and some of the Trump administration's successes, some of these topics include foreign, uh, former Biden staffer Tara Reid and her sexual assault allegations against him, the Hunter Biden scandal, VP nominee Kamala Harris's extreme liberal voting record in the Senate. She was named the most liberal senator last year. The U.S.'s economic jump in the third quarter, millions of jobs added, America's energy independence. So they also pulled on some of these issues that were uh, Trump wins that the media ignored. Operation Warp Speed successes, Trump's facilitation of multiple peace deals in in the Middle East. So they asked the sample size, did you hear about these things? If you, okay, you didn't. So would they have influenced your vote? Either way. So here's another quote from Bozell. He says, the media can talk all day long about Donald Trump and about things that he's doing wrong. It is absolutely unequivocal, the evidence, that it was the national news media that deliberately, and I underscore deliberately, made it a point not to tell the public about these stories that nobody can question weren't important stories. We showed that they covered it up, and now we're showing the evidence that it could potentially cost Donald Trump the election. Over a quarter of Biden voters said they did not know Senator Harris had the most liberal voting record in the Senate in 2019, and nearly half of all Biden voters polled, 49% said they were unaware of the U.S.'s remarkable economic recovery in the third quarter, doubling the previous record. One in six Biden voters polled, 17%, said they would have changed their vote had they been aware of these two stories. 17% across seven states in a diverse sample pool. The report also found that without even voting for Trump and simply refusing to vote for Biden, so let's say that somebody said, well, this would have changed my mind, but I still wouldn't have voted for Trump, but I at least wouldn't have voted for Biden. These voters still would have handed all six of these states and a second term to the president if the news media had, had properly informed them about the two candidates. Each swing state surveyed also produced high numbers of Biden voters who would have defected if they had known the full story. In Pennsylvania and Georgia, 15% of Biden's voters would have refrained from casting a vote for him. In Michigan, it was 14%. In Arizona, it was 21%. In Wisconsin, it was 13%. And in Nevada, it was 18%. The significant numbers, the report states, would have moved every one of the swing states into Trump's column, some by a huge margin. The president would have won the Electoral College 311 to 227, Bozell said, judging by the results of this poll. So Bozell's ultimate thesis was that the national news media stole this election. And he said, as far as I'm concerned, they stole it from President Trump by deliberately censoring and keeping from the American people those stories which, had the American people known, would have led to his reelection unquestionably. They talked a lot about the Biden scandals. They talked a lot about Hunter Biden and the Senate reports results in Ukraine and in China. There are different findings of the way in which Hunter Biden and Joe Biden profited off of their foreign policy. So Americans voters didn't know about this. They didn't know about Biden's past record uh, when it came to the 1994 crime bill. They didn't know about his past comments on segregation and desegregation. They didn't know that Biden in his past actually said that he didn't want his raising. He didn't want to raise his kids in a racial jungle. You can actually Google that. Even the fact checkers will tell you that that's true. But the people didn't know this because the media didn't tell them. So when I talk about the media a lot, guys, and it probably sounds like I rail against them often, the reason I do this is because it's not just an annoyance. It's not just an inconvenience that the media heavily favors one side. It actually is influential. And if the media were more objective, the country would look like a very different place. Minds would be changed, actually, because they'd be getting the full story, but they're not. And I think that that's a far greater problem than just an inconvenience. So I'll leave that there. I want to move now and I want to talk about the Great Reset. And we're going to finish the episode with this. You remember last week how I mentioned the Great Reset? 
in an episode. I did an entire episode about it. I talked about the eight agenda items for 2030, uh, which I just want to go over again, these sort of eight predictions that the Great Reset the, from the World Economic Forum predicts for 2030. They say that, number one, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Everything you have, you'll rent and it'll be delivered to you by drones. So a complete elimination of private property or private ownership. U.S. won't be the world's leading superpower. A handful of countries will dominate, largely at China's, um, at China's really, direction. You won't die waiting for an organ donor. We won't transplant organs. We'll just print new ones instead. So that involves a lot of ethical questions around stem cell research and fetal tissue research and all these different things. Number four, you'll eat much less meat. It'll be an occasional treat, not a staple for the good of our environment and for your health. So they're basically trying to move away from eat uh, meat, eating meat and from meat production as a whole. No, thank you. A billion people will be displaced by climate change. And ultimately, the reason that they push this one is because it will push for more immigration and more refugees. It'll lead to a decrease in border patrol. It'll lead to a decrease in sovereign countries and an increase of globalization. Polluters will have to pay to emit carbon dioxide. There'll be a global price on carbon in order to make fossil fuels history, even though the science does not back that up, even though many of these people say, oh, we want a clean environment. And then yet they refuse the cleanest form of energy that's also the most efficient, which is nuclear energy. They will focus on space survival, not just travel. So the goal will be to colonize other planets like Mars and to focus on living long terms in space. And then finally, Western values will be pushed to the, great, to the breaking point, which has really been the goal all along. And I talked a bit about how they're enacting this. This is not a conspiracy theory. We know that the World Economic Forum has actually met on this. They've talked about this with some of the key leaders around the world. Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, just talked about this recently. We know that world leaders have been very out front and in the open about it. Well, we have new developments. This is a story released yesterday out of the Hill. John Kerry, former presidential candidate, former Secretary of State, reveals Biden's devotion to radical Great Reset movement. So the Hill reporting in June... Elites at important international institutions such as the World Economic Forum and the United Nations launched a far-reaching campaign to reset the global economy. Again, guys, if, if you want more information on this, go back and listen to my Great Reset episode. We dialogue about all the different intricacies of this, the transhumanist aspect to this, the uh, Yuri Bezmenov sort of four steps to totalitarian takeover and how they're implementing this. Uh, we talked about all of it. So what I really want to focus on now is that the Biden campaign has become very out front and open about the fact that if Biden ends up winning, this will be something that they embrace immediately. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is happening. They're out in the open about it. They're honest about it. So I don't understand why the media has largely said, oh, this isn't really happening. Guys, don't pay attention to this. This is just a wacky right-wing conspiracy theory. When the World Economic Forum literally has a website completely devoted to it, you can go look it up yourself. The plan involves dramatically increasing the power of government through expansive new social programs like the Green New Deal and using vast regulatory schemes and government programs to coerce corporations into supporting left-wing causes. Two justifications for the proposal are the COVID-19 pandemic, which is the short-term justification, and then the so-called climate crisis caused by global warming, which is the long-term justification. According to the Great Reset supporters, the plan would fundamentally transform much of society, and as the World Economic Forum head Klaus Schwab wrote back in June, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and our economies, from education to social contracts, working conditions. Every country from the United States to China must participate, and every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. So we know that the Great Reset's been backed by these influential leaders, activists, academics, institutions. In addition to the World Economic Forum and the United Nations, the Great Reset movement counts among its uh, supporters the International Monetary Fund, heads of state, Greenpeace, CEOs and presidents of large corporations, financial institutions such as Microsoft, MasterCard. 
So a lot of people have started to question, where does Biden stand in the event that he ends up winning? Where does Biden stand on the Great Reset? What exactly would he do? How would he embrace it? How much would he embrace it? Well, at a panel discussion about the Great Reset hosted by the World Economic Forum in mid-November, just a few weeks ago, former Secretary of State John Kerry, Biden's would-be special presidential envoy for climate, he called him his climate czar, which I couldn't think of a more creepy way to word his role there, but he's the special envoy for climate firmly declared that the Biden administration will support the Great Reset and that the Great Reset will happen with, quote, greater speed and with greater intensity than a lot of people might imagine. When asked by panel host Borg Brende whether the World Economic Forum and the other Great Reset supporters are, quote, expecting too much too soon from the new president, or is he going to deliver first day on this topic, Kerry responded, the answer to your question is no, you're not expecting too much. And yes, the Great Reset will happen. I think it will happen with great speed and with greater intensity than a lot of people might imagine. He says he actually later argued that the Great Reset is necessary to slow the climate crisis and that, quote, I know Joe Biden believes it's not just enough to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords for the United States. It's not enough for us just to do the minimum of what Paris requires. Kerry also said that because of the Great Reset movement, he believes, quote, we're at the dawn of an extremely exciting time and that the greatest opportunity we have to address social and economic problems is dealing with the climate crisis. These and the other comments made by Kerry at the World Economic Forum event are made more important by the fact that Kerry's role in a Biden administration would involve working with the very same international institutions that have already expressed their support for the Great Reset on climate change, not just on COVID. This isn't the first time Kerry has thrown his weight behind the Great Reset at a June World Economic Forum virtual event. Kerry said the coronavirus pandemic was a big moment that opened the door for the Great Reset and that the World Economic Forum, the CEO capacity of the forum, is really going to have to play a front and center role in refining the Great Reset to deal with climate change and inequity. There's that word. We talk about it a lot in the show. Remember the difference between equity and equality. Equality sees everyone as equal. It's beautiful. People were made equally in the image of God. Equity, striving for equity, what our culture means when they, when they say that today, is this whole animal farm style messaging of some people are more equal than other people, so they deserve special treatment. It's a very affirmative action mindset. So when the Great Reset is striving for equity to, to fix or correct inequities, that's exactly what they mean. They want that animal farm style life. And if you've never read The Animal Farm, by the way, I highly recommend going back and reading that book. It's a book that a lot of us sort of read in middle school and skimmed through and then haven't picked back up since. But my goodness, it's an easy read. It's quick. And it is very enlightening to what's taking place currently. The evidence is now crystal clear about Biden's connection to the Great Reset. He, John Kerry, and the rest of the Biden administration are planning to bring the Great Reset to the United States. And if they're successful, the country will never be the same. So hearing all that, guys, again, I recommend uh, going back and listening to that Great Reset through that lens that the potentially incoming administration, if he if he wins, has professed that this is something that they will pursue. And the reality is, whether or not Biden does win, let's say that Trump pulls off a miracle and does win, we know now that the world is wanting to go this direction. And Trump has really been the bodyguard against that. He's made it very clear he's not into the globalism. He's not into the Paris Climate Accords. He recognizes that they're disastrous, that all they do is hurt the American economy while helping China. So my goodness, thank, regardless how you feel about the guy, one thing is absolutely certain. He has stood against globalism and has fought for 
Americans to be able to make decisions and to become energy independent and for free will to be protected in a way that virtually no other world leader is, is seemingly willing to do right now on the, on the global stage. But so regardless of what happens in the election and what ends up happening on January 20th, it's important that we understand the Great Reset. It's important that we look into this because more and more global players are starting to profess their love for this uh, grand utopian sort of vision for where the world goes over the next decade. Now, one quick pause before I move into the last little article I want to read you here. I think it's very funny that John Kerry is the guy that's supposed to be like our climate savior when he owns multiple homes, a $12 million home on the beach, flies in private jets all over the place. I just think that that's very humorous, but I digress. Final thing I want to read you. This is out of Market Watch, and this is a piece that really just loops all of this together here and only exemplifies uh, the coronavirus slash climate change connection. So this is out of Market Watch, a major economic publication. We need to act boldly now if we are to avoid economy-wide lockdowns due to halt climate change. We are approaching a tipping point on climate change when protecting the future of civilization will require dramatic interventions. So this is out of London. As COVID-19 spread earlier this year, governments introduced lockdowns in order to prevent a public health emergency from spinning out of control. In the near future, the world may need to resort to lockdowns again, this time to tackle a climate emergency. So this is written by someone who has a great deal of, um, is very fond of the Great Reset and really loves the idea of lockdowns to, you know, as long as it benefits them politically and their political agenda. Shifting Arctic ice, raging wildfires in Western U.S. states and elsewhere, which, by the way, nobody ever wants to talk about this, but in my episode, the radical religion or the religion of radical environmentalism, I clearly outlined that all of the data and science has shown that our wildfires in California are more due to faulty electrical equipment that is old enough in some instances to be placed on the uh, national historic registry than it has to do with any sort of climate emergency. But they don't want to talk about this. We, it's easier to just blame everything on climate change. They also include in their methane leaks in the North Sea, they say that these are all warning signs that we are approaching a tipping point on climate change. When protecting the future of civilization will require dramatic interventions. Last statement. Avoiding this scenario will require a green economic transformation and thus a radical overhaul of corporate governance, finance, policy, and energy systems. Under a climate lockdown, governments would limit private vehicle use, ban consumption of red meat, and impose extreme energy-saving measures, while fossil fuel companies would have to stop drilling. To avoid such a scenario, we must overhaul our economic structures and do capitalism differently. So this author is making the case that the Great Reset is making. The COVID-19 season has taught us what's possible. It's taught us what we need to change. We've learned about lockdowns, and Americans have just willingly gone along with it. So what if we use lockdowns for all the other things that we label emergencies? If we really believe that the world is about to implode in 20 years due to climate change, why don't we use these dire measures like lockdowns to halt climate change? We'll actually use the government to limit the amount that you can drive your car. We'll use the government to ban how much steak you can eat. These lockdowns, look at how much they've enlightened us to realize what people will actually go along with if they believe that there's emergency at hand. That is what we've learned in this season. That is what the people that rule us, that don't have a strong desire to protect our freedoms, that is what they've learned, is that, wow, people are really willing to be compliant for a virus that has a 99.9% survival rate for the majority of population. Why don't we just scare everybody into all these other things? By the way, I'm not even falsely judging intentions. They are telling us this. This article is outlining why they believe that lockdowns are necessary as long as the challenge is great enough. This is why Benjamin Franklin said those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. We have given up liberty across this country for safety in this season, and we've scared ourselves into submission. And people have noticed 
People that have a lot of power, that want more power, have noticed. And they've recognized how much we are willing to go along with these things, how much we are willing to fear our fellow man or woman because of what the media is screaming down our throats. The people that are even placing these government restrictions over us, they're not actually scared. Just last week, we learned, or just this week, we learned that the mayor of Austin a month ago imposed all these lockdowns on his people and said, don't travel, don't move, don't go anywhere. You really need to hunker down at home in order that we can fight this virus. Guess where he filmed that message from on Zoom? He filmed that from Cabo San Lucas on a vacation with his family. You think he's really concerned about the coronavirus? You think Gavin Newsom is really afraid of the coronavirus? Yet he wants everybody else to be afraid. So... It's really time that we start paying attention to what's happening, guys. It's time that we start paying attention to what these people are telling us. It's not like we have to guess. We're able to, to actually just listen to them say, hey, lockdowns have worked here. Maybe we should lock down for the climate as well. And then we just go down the slippery slope of we may even have to stop you from eating a cheeseburger. And while all this can sound very doom and gloom, I want to keep it in balance. I want us to recognize that, yes, we should have a healthy level of concern of what's happening, but we cannot live in fear over this stuff. Our happiness cannot be dependent upon what's happening. We need a deeper-seated joy that is dependent upon the deep-settled confidence that God loves us, He cares for us, He knows what's going on, none of this surprises the Lord. He wants to help us get through it, and He wants to lead us and guide us, even in the face of tyranny or in the face of crazy times. People have had it worse, way worse throughout history. And it's important that we remember that as well, to keep that in balance, to recognize that while 2020 has been quite a year, my goodness, it's been a fantastic year when you compare it with 1918. It's been a fantastic year when you compare it to 1942. It's been a fantastic year when you compare it to the Dark Ages. So you have a, we've got to have a healthy level of concern, but also at the same time recognize that there were 18-year-old American boys that flew across the world to land on the beaches of Normandy and to fight to the death for freedom, knowing full well that they'd probably never see their families again. They had their whole lives ahead of them. And yet at the end of the day, they chose to go sacrifice their life for these American ideals, for freedom, for these unalienable rights. People have had it far worse throughout history, guys. And so... I pray that we would have that balance. We're concerned, yet at the same time, we're aware of how blessed we truly are. We know how to pray for what's happening. We know how to stand against it. But at the same time, we, we don't let it overwhelm us with fear or with concern. So I'm going to end the episode there. Guys, it's been an absolute blast to talk to you today. We're going to have some big episodes next week. We're going to talk about a lot. So make sure you come back and join me. We're going to actually discuss Israel, the Second Amendment. We're going to talk about some topics that we haven't talked about in a while, as well as going through the election and giving some updates. So come back and join me for that. Uh, as always, guys, if you enjoyed the show, please share it with your communities. Please leave a positive review on Apple if you did enjoy the show. That helps the show grow so much. If you'd feel led, you can donate to the show on my website at refiningpoliticsandculture.com. I hope and pray you all have a fantastic weekend, a great rest of your Friday. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture. Michael Seifert.